You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's show is also brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Scurvy Pete, Kane, Kenway, Hefei, Zuman, Nopales, Blacktip, Matthew the Navigator, Mossman, LeChuck, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Originally today, I wanted to talk about the heirs of Barbarossa, that is, Hassan Pasha, his son, Turgut Rais, known as Dragut, Kurtuglu Hizir, and Murat Rais the Elder. However, most of those characters would require discussions of Morocco and the Portuguese and their empire and an entirely different war that I'm not prepared to cover in a single episode. Now, some of that will be necessary, and we will get there, but not today. And the more I read, three of them began to look more and more like supporting characters, while one of them really stood out as a main character. So today we're going to talk about the one true heir of Barbarossa, a man who was, depending on the situation and your point of view, a corsair, an admiral, a governor, and a pirate, and a man who I choose to use as our bridge to proper Barbary piracy. This is episode 82, The Drawn Sword of Islam. Last time, I told you that Dragut returned to Algiers with Barbarossa, but that's actually not true. After he was freed from his stint as a galley slave, Barbarossa handed him command of the Ottoman fleet immediately, while they were both still in Europe. Dragut took that fleet and immediately went back to work. He captured all of the recent conquests of Andrea Doria, including the city of Tunis, which was quite a big get for the Ottoman Empire. And if you'll remember, Malta and the Knights of St. John were just off the coast of Tunisia. That's why Spain captured Tunis. Now, Dragut set out doing good work from Tunis, inflicting harm on the Knights of Malta all over the place. But two years after the death of Barbarossa, his son, Hassan Pasha, the Lord of Algiers, made a major screw-up. Now that's the story that involves Morocco and the Portuguese and Kurtuglu Hazir and Piri Rais and the Indian Ocean. It's an entirely different story. So don't worry about what that screw-up was. But what's important here is that the Sultan, Suleiman, replaced Barbarossa's son with Dragut. He made Turgut Rais the Pasha of Algiers. Now that was a bit of a setback for Dragut. 
He had other business to be about, and ruling Algiers wasn't part of that, but it wasn't a huge issue, not for the moment. Dragut just did what Barbarossa had done and told Hassan Aga to run things for a while. And Hassan Aga did so, with Hassan Pasha, Barbarossa's son, in tow. Perhaps Barbarossa's son wasn't yet ready for command when Barbarossa handed him the reins of power. Regardless, Dragut went off to expand his fleet. He went to sea and into the Christian world to capture slaves, and went back to playing that old game of capturing and recapturing territory with Andrea Doria. Now, there is one really great story from this period. In one event, Dragut was careening his ships in a lagoon outside the city of Gerba in 1550. Now, careening a galley or a galleo was not nearly as big a problem as careening a sailing vessel, but it was still a bit of work. But that lagoon in which they were careening only had one entrance or exit, and that was when Andrea Doria arrived and blockaded the harbor mouth. Dragut was trapped, but he held out hope until the city of Gerba fell, but then he was forced to act fast or to lose the entire western Mediterranean fleet. So he ordered a canal dug across the entire peninsula, the peninsula that created the lagoon they were stuck in. Where digging was impossible, he ordered wooden causeways built. Then his men maneuvered their galleys through the canal. They greased up their hulls, and they pulled their ships over the wooden platforms when they couldn't keep them in the water. And finally, they all made it out safely to sea. Then they captured a few rogue vessels that belonged to Andrea Doria and sailed off free men. But throughout all this, the story was much the same as it had been when Barbarossa was alive. Andrea Doria, or one of his nephews, would capture territory while Dragut captured slaves up in Europe. But up to the north, far from the Mediterranean, the rest of Europe was getting a little bit bored. So they decided it was about time to have another Italian war. Now, this time it was called the War of 1551 to 1559. And again, Italy was not the major player in the war. It looked a lot like the last Italian war, at least up on the continent. Spain and France were fighting in the Netherlands over territory that they traded back and forth about once or twice a decade. The Holy Roman Empire was fighting in northern Italy, and in the rest of Italy, Italy was fighting Italy. The only major difference between this war and the last one were the commanders. About midway through the war, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V decided he was tired of fighting the same war over and over and over, so he abdicated all of his thrones and his titles and his power. His brother took up the role of emperor, which he'd basically been doing for decades now, and his son, Philip, became Philip II, King of Spain. Now, Philip's wife, Mary, Queen of England, told a lot of Anglicans that they would have to go die for her Catholic husband. This upset the English. They would complain, and Mary would butcher them relentlessly. But it's in the Mediterranean that things got a lot more interesting. Once again, the Sultan sent out a few hundred galleys from the eastern Mediterranean to help out in the war in the west. Once again, they were there to aid France and basically be the naval arm of the alliance. This time, though, 
the entire force would be led by Dragut, who would earn his nickname on this campaign, the Drawn Sword of Islam. Now, initially, the Sultan's fleet was led by an Ottoman admiral named, just to confuse the matter here, Sinan. Now, this was not Sinan Rais, the great Jew. This was a man named Sinan Pasha, who was a vizier back in Istanbul. The Italian historian Pekevi said of this Sinan, quote, Sinan Pasha was a proud and megalomaniac man who would not listen to the opinions and complaints of others. He had a cold gaze, end quote. And if that were true, then it really must have rankled when the Sultan told Sinan Pasha, upon setting out in no uncertain terms, quote, do whatever Turgut says, end quote. Now, Barbarossa had, well, he'd essentially conquered the North African coast, and he'd always had a certain amount of autonomy from Istanbul. The Sultan was busy dealing with affairs in Turkey and Arabia and on the border with Persia, not to mention the troubles in Hungary and Egypt. North Africa and the Western Mediterranean and Western Europe, while interests of the Sultan, were not affairs with which he could be directly bothered, so he left those in the hands of Barbarossa. And it appears that Dragut inherited some of that autonomy, maybe most of it. Hassan Pasha didn't have the influence or the strength or the trust of the Sultan to do things without the Sultan's express orders, but Turgut Rais did. And before Dragut got on with the business of prosecuting the war and helping out their allies, France, he had a plan. He had intentions for all of those galleys and all of those janissaries sent by Suleiman. Instead of sailing for Sicily or Italy or France, which he was supposed to do, he sailed for Malta. The Knights of Malta were understandably unnerved by the sudden arrival of hundreds of galleys and thousands of troops, and these weren't the galleos and corsairs they were used to seeing, this was a large force of heavily armed war galleys and janissary troops which were significantly better armed and better trained than the regular corsairs. And see, the Knights of Malta weren't part of this war. They were allied to Spain, but in this war they hadn't signed up and joined on as they had in the previous war. They were sitting this one out. But Dragut, well, he changed his plan, or maybe it had been his plan from the start, but instead of attacking Malta itself, he captured another island in sight of Malta, a subsidiary island. He captured every person on the island suitable for slavery and sailed away for Africa. Now, I'd like to read here the description of the Knights of St. John given by Philip Gose, and keep in mind most of this is hyperbole, but there are a few nuggets of truth in here. Quote, they built fortifications on a scale never before attempted, and galleys which were the terror of every Muslim vessel, whether legal or illegal, afloat. Their success became proverbial. If the knights had possessed a sufficient number of ships, it is probable that the Turks would have been swept off the Mediterranean. Their fleet numbered only seven large galleys. Six of them were painted bright red, the flagship of the commander, a somber black. They were of exceptional size, rowed by Mohammedan slaves, and heavily armed. For many years the knights of St. John lived by plundering the enemies of the faith and led lives devoted to chastity, piety, and charity. End quote. 
Let's unpack that, shall we? We need to discuss our cast of characters as well. Taken in context, what the author is saying here about the fortifications on a scale never before attempted, well, that's actually sort of true. What he's saying is that the Knights of St. John, after receiving Malta and their alliance with Charles, they built new fortifications on a scale that they had never before attempted, which was the case. And as we will see, well, they were impressive however you looked at them. The island of Malta was far better defended than Rhodes ever had been. But Malta wasn't their only outpost on the Mediterranean. They had two cities. They had Tunis until Dragut came in and took it, and then they had the city of Tripoli, which was also impressively defended. It had high, strong walls guarded by cannon batteries and some of the better soldiers that Europe had to offer. The Knights of Malta themselves were among the best, now, Gose's statement that the ships of the Knights of Malta were the terror of every Moslem vessel, well, that's probably less true. Now, their galleys were impressive, I'm not disputing that, and if it came down to a one-on-one -on -one fight between a Maltese galley and an Ottoman galley, the Maltese would take the day, almost without question. However, that kind of fight rarely came to pass. Barbarossa and Sinan Rais and Dragut and all of the early Barbary Corsairs, well, they sailed with several galleys at a time, at the least. They rarely feared a galley of the Knights of Malta, unless there were several of them to fight, at least on the sea. And the claim that Ghost makes that, with sufficient numbers, the Knights of Malta could have scoured the Mediterranean of the Ottoman presence. Well, Spain, the most powerful empire in the world, couldn't do it. Spain and Italy and the Holy Roman Empire and sometimes England combined, they couldn't do it all together. Now, if their navies had been as skilled and as powerful as the Knights of Malta, sure, they could have done it. But the whole point of an elite fighting force is that they are elite. They are better than the average sailor and the average soldier. Europe just didn't have the money or the manpower or the will to mount such a force. The Knights of Malta were such a small fleet because that's all they could support. And then the size of the fleet and the pious, chaste, charitable, one might even say humble nature of the order, that's all nonsense. Without getting into any of the rampant conspiracy theories about the Knights of Malta, they were still far from reclusive, pious monks living in poverty. They were almost privateers. They were, at the least, privateer lords. They did have that very small fleet of very large galleys. Whenever they were called upon to aid in any major military matters against the Turks, the Knights of Malta filled their galleys with their knights and created a strong backbone for any marine fighting force. There's a reason that the Knights of Malta are always the first to come in enemy contact, the first to land on the beach, to create a beachhead. It's D-Day every time the Knights of Malta are out there fighting. But their strength was not in their private navy, at least not just in their private navy. See, the Knights of Malta engaged in many of the same practices as the later English governors of Jamaica or the French in Tortuga or the Baylor Bays of Algiers and Tunis and Tripoli. 
they hired mercenary sailors to act as privateers. Now, these privateers weren't straddling the line of piracy like Henry Morgan or Lolonet or even someone like Francis Drake. They were sanctioned by a holy order and, in their eyes, had God himself on their side. And sometimes they would even have a Maltese ambassador, one of the Knights of Malta, on board. They had a strong sense of legitimacy, in their own eyes as well as those of Europe. They were soldiers of God, carrying on the Crusades at sea. But in reality, in tactics, they weren't that different from the buccaneers. They were mariners that had blown their last chances in their home countries. They went to work for the Knights of Malta to get that letter of mark and search for their fortunes at the expense of others on the sea. Now, these men weren't Knights of Malta. They weren't members of the order. What they were was a necessary evil. See, the crowned heads of Europe were through fighting the Crusades. The Holy Land was lost. Jerusalem belonged to the Sultan. So they stopped funding the Knights of St. John. It was a Crusader order from the Crusades, but there was no more Crusade to fight. Now, Italy and Spain saw value in the Knights of Malta as an elite mercenary navy, but only if they didn't have to give them any money. The Knights of Malta solved this problem with privateers. They gave them pieces of paper and turned them loose. It was very much like when Governor Modiford sent Morgan out to raid the Spanish Main. It brought in funds to the Knights of Malta, and it kept the seas safe. It kept a force of well-armed, provisioned eyes on the sea to see exactly what those Barbary pirates were up to. So while the Knights of Malta, the actual knights, might observe the forms of their religion, we can banish piety and chastity and remember that the Knights of Malta were, in form, independent privateer admirals with a veneer of sanctity. But I think that appearance outside Malta of Dragut and his fleet and the subsequent attack on one of their protectorates was kind of a dare, maybe maybe a threat or a challenge. Here's what I've got, and I'm coming for you. And Dragut was coming for the Knights of Malta, but not at Malta, not yet. Instead, he sailed for the last stronghold on the North African coast, Tripoli. Now, since 1530 or so, that had been a stronghold for the Knights, and it was very well defended. Neither Barbarossa nor Suleiman had ever dared attack Tripoli. But Turgut Rais had this large, impressive Ottoman fleet and his thousands of Janissary soldiers, and he meant to take that opportunity to oust the Knights of Malta from Tripoli. See, Tripoli was the home of all of those privateers that worked for the Knights of Malta. They didn't put in at the island of Malta, that was for the knights and the nuns and everybody who belonged to the Holy Order. But at Tripoli, they could all gather. The navy there was commanded by a knight named Gaspard de Vallier, a Frenchman. Now, he had only 30 other knights with him, but there were at least 600 mercenaries in Tripoli and perhaps hundreds of privateers that might be in or out of the city at any given time. The mayor of Tripoli was none other than Jean de Vallette, another French knight. 
He was that commander who had at one point been a captive to Dragut and had negotiated Dragut's release from Andrea Doria. Now last time, when Philip Ghost called the ransom of Dragut, quote, a bargain which the whole of Christendom as well as the Admiral lived to regret, end quote, the Admiral in question was Jean de Villette, and this was the first moment that he might have seriously begun to regret his decision. Dragut arrived outside Tripoli in late July 1551. He blockaded the harbor there and constructed three gun batteries on the shore. They were aimed directly at the fortress of the Knights of Malta. This was to be a proper siege. No food was to go in or out, and no one was to leave. But after establishing the siege, Dragut waited around. That was the first tactic in a siege, but he was waiting for something. He was waiting for the French ambassador to the Ottoman Empire to arrive. And when he did, the ambassador protested this entire attack. He said that this was not part of their alliance treaty, nor was it a part of the plans of France. And it put the lives of several French commanders of the neutral Knights of Malta at risk. The official position of the French army was to stand against this attack. Now, Barbarossa had had his eyes on political power, and whenever he was faced with a decision like this, he usually made the politic decision, and he may have capitulated here. But Dragut and Sinan Pasha were not interested in politics, at least not in the same fashion. So they refused to lift the siege until the Knights of Malta had left Africa for good, the ambassador, the French ambassador, threatened to sail for Istanbul, to leave this fleet behind, and then to go tattle on them to the sultan. So Dragut occupied his ships. He sent janissaries to take the galleys of the French ambassador, and then he brought them in to be used in the blockade of the harbor. The ambassador was asked, very politely and with all honors, to stay on the ship and shut up until they were done here. And with that little problem out of the way, the Corsairs opened fire. Once the firing began, they didn't let up for six days. It was a ceaseless bombardment, day and night. And on August 15th, those mercenary soldiers inside the fortress mutinied against the knights in charge. They took it over, and they surrendered. The Maltese knights had no choice but to surrender as well, now, they weren't massacred, as one might assume. They were allowed to leave in peace, however, without their ships. A small galley carried them home to Malta. When they got back, Gaspard de Vallier would be stripped of his rank and thrown out of the order for his rank incompetence in the Battle of Tripoli. However, a few years later, when Jean de Vallette was raised Grand Master, well, he'd been there. He saw how bad it got, and he reinstated Vallier. As for the French ambassador that arrived to officially protest, his story lends us a much-needed dose of piratical flair here. It certainly makes it feel a lot more like a proper pirate tale to have a stuffy, well-dressed, aristocratic, perfumed Frenchman show up and protest the actions of these violent sea raiders. But back in Europe, literally nobody believed his story. 
It was the general consensus among all of the enemies of Spain that this French ambassador had actually gone there to aid Dragut, to give him some important information. But after the fact, the French government and this ambassador spread that story to make him seem more legitimate. Now, this was the first military strike in this Italian war. And really, it shouldn't be counted as part of that war, since it was an unsanctioned attack on a non-combatant state. But after Tripoli, Dragut finally got his act together and sailed off to prosecute the war properly. He went to Sicily, he went to Italy, and when he left to go attack these enemies of France and the Ottoman Empire, the entire Ottoman Armada went with him. But that's actually a problem here. The entire armada wasn't supposed to. Half of them were supposed to stay with Sinan Pasha and go elsewhere. Those corsairs, though, kind of hated Sinan Pasha, and they just left when Dragut did. Now, Dragut hated Sinan Pasha as well, but when he caught wind of the fact that everybody was sailing somewhere close to him, he sent word to all of the corsairs that... If they were supposed to stay with Sinan Pasha and they hadn't done so, well, that was mutiny, and he would punish them unto death if need be. So it seems here that Dragut had gotten on track. He'd gotten with the program, so to speak. Now, the Sultan may not have known precisely that Dragut was going to go attack Tripoli, and it certainly wouldn't have been sanctioned under their war aims, but it does seem suspicious that the sultan told Sinan Pasha to do whatever Dragut said. And immediately, Dragut goes to do something that's, well, basically illegal. And it sounds and it feels kind of piratical, but it may have been a clandestine operation sanctioned by the sultan himself. Not part of the war, but he was sending out those ships anyway. Might as well take Tripoli. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Now, I won't go into detail about the war, not even in the Mediterranean. It's just another war. 
and frankly I get tired of talking about wars in which one imperial power fights another imperial power over scraps of land with not a care for the soldiers that were actually bleeding and dying. This happened a lot, and frankly there's nothing interesting in it for me. It was seasonal warfare, and to the aristocrats at the top it was almost a sport. I find interest in the wars where the soul of a nation or a people is at jeopardy. Wars like the Thirty Years' War or the English Civil War, but this Italian war is just one in a long line of European wars that didn't really amount to much. They made war in the Ottoman fashion in the case of the Corsairs under Dragut. I'll sum up that war in a message sent by that French ambassador to King Henry II of France. Quote, the Turks burnt all the castles and villages on their descent for twelve or fifteen miles along the shore, and without making any stop, the said captain of the fleet, he means Dragut, following the coast, intended to spread the flames from one end of the coast to the other. End quote. They attacked Sicily and Sardinia, they attacked the Papal States and Naples, basically anywhere that a navy could reach was ravaged by the Franco-Ottoman alliance. It was war. Dragut, though, was the most successful commander among anyone in the fleet. Sinan Pasha and the French fleet commander, a man named Baron de Lagarde, well, they were having plenty of their own successes, but not as much as Dragut. However, relations became strained among this allied force. There was the rivalry between Dragut and Sinan, but more than that, the French and the Ottomans were at odds. Dragut had a bad habit of not showing up to rendezvous with Baron de Lagarde. When the French were interested in some piece of tactically or perhaps politically important territory, well, Dragut didn't usually care. He cared more about attacking the places that would allow him to kill Catholics, the places where he could take slaves, the places where he could earn huge amounts of plunder. Those were the things that made him popular with the men, and they made him very popular. All of the corsairs and the janissaries were filling their pockets in a very privateer fashion, but Sinan Pasha and de la Garde, their men were fighting and dying over fortresses and small tracts of land. Now you'd think that this would cause troubles with the alliance on a greater scale and anger Suleiman the Magnificent, but while the French were upset, Suleiman was quite the opposite. See, the French continued to default on their debts over and over again. They owed the Ottoman Empire a lot of money, and they weren't paying up. The ambassador, that French ambassador, had personal debts back in Istanbul that he couldn't repay. So Suleiman gave Dragut a huge amount of leeway that was intended to earn some of that money back. So instead of reprimanding Dragut, Suleiman gave him Tripoli. He made him Pasha of Tripoli. And then Dragut defeated a fleet commanded by Andrea Doria at the Battle of Panza. That was the big climactic battle in this war. He captured galleys, he rescued the galley slaves, and enslaved Catholic soldiers there. He didn't lose a ship either. The Sultan was very happy with his performance. So in addition to making him the Pasha of Tripoli, Suleiman gave Dragut the position of Baylor Bay of the Mediterranean, that is, the Grand High Admiral of all of the Ottoman ships in the Mediterranean Sea. That was a position that had not been filled since 1545, when Barbarossa retired. Dragut had taken up command of the fleet, but he didn't have this 
position handed down from on high. There was another battle in the war, the Battle of Zerba in 1560, that once again Dragut won. Now this was the culmination of the war, and actually it was fought after France and Spain had signed a peace treaty, so the war was kind of over, but Dragut wasn't ready to end it. Now, as for the Ottoman relations with France, the military alliance after the war was over, for the moment. The alliance in general, the Franco-Ottoman alliance, would stand until Napoleon, but their agreement to fight together was over. That alliance would be strengthened, though. When the Dutch revolt begins in a few years' time, France would agree to aid the United Provinces in their war. The Barbary states would agree to get involved, the Sultan would agree to get involved, and Queen Elizabeth would agree to get involved. And one Moroccan Jew would bring Dutch Z-rovers down to the Barbary states. He would bring them to Algiers and Tunis and Tripoli, and that would set off a new wave of piracy, the likes of which the world had never seen. More on that next time. For now, though, Dragut had another battle to fight. After that sudden appearance of Dragut and the fleet off the coast of Malta and his subsequent conquest of Tripoli, the Grand Master of the Knights of Malta ordered preparations to be made to face a potential invasion. Now, sometimes I imagine Malta as an island fortress, but it's really not. Malta is a large island. It's got several cities and many smaller villages. Now, when the Knights of St. John acquired Malta, they inhabited the Fort St. Angelo on what's called the Grand Harbor of Malta. Strategically, this is the most important place on the island. If you wanted to launch a military invasion, this was the place to do it. And I'm going to put maps up of both Malta, the Grand Harbor, and the Mediterranean in general at the website if you want a visual image here. Now, the Grand Master brought in an Italian architect named Antonio Ferramolino, who had been building fortresses that frustrated the Barbary Corsairs for years, all across Italy and the Adriatic. He came in and expanded Fort St. Angelo to include bastions and curtain walls and gun batteries and trenches. Essentially, he modernized this ancient fortress for the gunpowder age. He constructed defenses that were unmatched in the world thus far. In this case, Philip Ghost seems to have actually been correct. These may have been some of the most impressive and extensive fortifications in the world. Any army that hoped to take Fort St. Angelo from the beach would have to make landfall under cannon fire from several sea-level batteries. Then, they would have to take those batteries. Once they did so, they would turn the batteries on the fortress, but they would have to climb a sandy hill toward the walls under fire. And then, once they were at the walls, they would have to scale them, somehow, facing down cannonades from three different directions. Now... A beachhead attack was not exactly the best idea here. So, if they decided to use their ships to blow a hole in the walls of Fort St. Angelo, they might assume that they were safe. They could storm the beach and take the breach that they had made. But when they did, they would find a second wall waiting there, with towers once again all around them. Fort St. Angelo was impenetrable from the sea, but... If the pirates managed to make landfall on Malta from another angle, they might take the Fort St. Angelo from the rear. So the Grand Master called in another architect, Pedro Pardo, to work on the other defenses of the island. 
Pardo designed two additional fortresses to stand on outcroppings of land that could all guard the approaches to one another. They were in strategically perfect locations, and no ship would be able to enter the Great Harbor without permission. The first of these forts designed by Pardo was the Fort St. Michael. Now, this appears to have been an impressive fortification. It had a seaside wall and gun batteries, it had a curtain wall and a large courtyard for the army, and then it had a central keep that had a dozen different towers in it. Its main purpose was to guard the land approaches to Fort St. Angelo. Sadly, Fort St. Michael was demolished in 1921 to make way for a school. The second fortress, though, was the Fort St. Elmo. Elmo was a star-shaped fortress. It stood at the very tip of a peninsula that guarded every approach to the Great Harbor. There were bastions that guarded every possible landing point on the beach. They were supported by a dual-layered curtain wall between them. Then there was the upper fortress, the Keep of Elmo. It had trenches and moats and batteries that guarded all of the land-based approaches down the peninsula. There were also several towers and five bastions. The Fort St. Elmo was a masterwork, and Pedro Pardo was understandably proud. The completion of Fort St. Elmo was overseen by the new Grand Master, Jean de Vallette. He had plans to move the military operations of the Order to Fort St. Elmo. He wanted to build an even larger walled city on the peninsula. But he hadn't yet gotten around to that by 1564. And in that year, he oversaw a campaign in which dozens of very high-profile Ottoman ships were captured. We're talking about ships carrying viziers and emirs and bailer bays, pashas of cities like Cairo and Alexandria, and the former nurse of the sultan's favorite daughter. So Vallette wasn't terribly surprised when his spies in Istanbul reported plans to attack Malta. He may have been, after a campaign like that, planning on it. He may have felt ready for it. The Italian estimates of the Ottoman forces that began to marshal reported 9,000 cavalry from all around the empire. There were 6,000 elite janissaries, and there were some 11,000 mercenary soldiers. That's 28,000 soldiers. To contrast that, there were only 500 Knights of St. John on the island of Malta. Now, they had Spanish volunteers as well, and a militia on the island made up mostly of exiled Greeks, and there were various other European adventurers, mostly Italian, to the tune of about 6,000 men. However, in their commander, Jean de Vallette, the Knights of Malta had something special. Philip Gose writes of him, quote, the order was fortunate in having for its grand master, in its greatest hour of peril, a man of outstanding wisdom and bravery, the seventy-year-old Jean de Vallette. He had been one of the defenders of Rhodes forty-three years before. He was the most experienced pirate fighter alive. He knew every leading corsair by sight, and most of them by name. End quote. Now, there are some conflicting sources that inflate the Maltese forces, and Vallette himself said that there were only about 16,000 soldiers in the invading force that would actually make landfall, and that's probably true. The navy, the Corsair navy, would stay on their galleys for the most part, and the mercenaries would only be brought in to fight if absolutely necessary. That would avoid the necessity of paying out sums for death and injury. 
but the entire Ottoman force was to be led by the drawn sword of Islam, the hero of the last Italian war, Turgut Rais. But he wasn't the one bringing them to Malta. At first, coming from Turkey, command was split between the general and the admiral. Both were instructed to defer to Dragut once they arrived. But the Ottoman forces arrived before Dragut did, at dawn on Friday, 18 May, 1565. The Knights of Malta were ready to defend their island. They knew this attack was coming, so they must have looked on in some confusion when the fleet sailed in close to the harbor, then turned around. They sailed southeast, then they turned around again and sailed northwest, past the harbor, to anchor a few miles away. Now we've seen what happens when these split commands between land and sea forces fall into disarray and disaster. Now, the emperor attempted to circumvent that when he gave Dragut overall command. That was a smart move. But until he arrived, the general and the admiral saw an opportunity here to grab the glory and the honor and the recognition for themselves. The general wanted to make landfall immediately, far from the harbor. He wanted to capture the capital of Malta, which was inland. Then he wanted to march on the fortresses while the navy bombarded them from the sea. The admiral wanted to not do that. He wanted to bombard the fortresses immediately and then send the army in to clean up whatever was left. Personally, I think the general had the right idea here. If they took the capital, they could cut off any support to the Knights of Malta. Then they would split the attention of the knights between the land and the sea. There would be men manning the gun batteries and preparing to defend from the landward side. Their attention would be split between these two fronts when a third force, the Corsairs under Dragut, could sail in and, acting as marines, take the fortress. But the following day, they appeared to have agreed upon a plan. The fleet sailed in and prepared to make landfall southeast of the harbor. Jean de Valette saw their position and surmised what they were about. The landing zone was closest to Fort St. Angelo and St. Michael. Valette saw, though, that their plan was to take Fort St. Elmo. He might have just been a skilled enough tactician to see the possibilities here. From their position, they could guard lines of supply out of range of all of the fortress's cannon. From there, they could set up batteries on a hill that would be in range of Fort St. Elmo. That may have just been the brilliant mind of Jean de Valette, or he may have had word from his spies that this was the plan from the beginning. Either way, though, he reinforced Fort St. Elmo with half of his men and half of his guns. He wanted to ensure that the fort would not fall. The Ottomans got their batteries in place that evening, and at dawn began a barrage on the walls. Though this was truly a well-constructed fortification, there was real punishment being delivered upon Fort St. Elmo, but the walls withstood it. The Ottomans, though, they were safely out of range of any return fire up on their hill. Every night, the commander of Fort St. Elmo had his wounded that had been defending the fortress ferried across the harbor to Fort St. Michael. From there, he could bring back supplies and reinforcements and orders. This went on for about a week a nearly constant barrage with supplies and reinforcements getting through. But then Dragut arrived. 
He brought with him 12,000 Barbary Corsairs and dozens of galleys. Once again, Ghost writes, quote, Dragut was now preparing to disembark his terrible Berbers in the exultant belief that the last chapter of the Crusades was now to be written in the blood of the Crusaders' heirs. End quote. We don't know that to be true. We don't have the writings of Dragut to tell us that he believed that. Dragut may have just wanted to take a very important tactical position away from a powerful enemy, but it does sound cool in the words of a European. The Corsairs joined the blockade on the harbor, but then Dragut ordered his ships that were small and light enough to go further in. They would be able to stop some of the ferry crossings. Then Dragut went to land, surveyed the situation, and ordered another battery to be built to guard against any other potential crossings. From both the harbor and the land, Dragut was able to stop all of the ferries and all of the supplies and all of the reinforcements and all of the orders. And then he brought his 12,000 corsairs ashore. There was an Italian soldier there named Francisco Balbi, and he wrote an account of the siege with a few fairly glaring exaggerations, but he wrote of the corsair force, quote, the darkness of the night became as bright as day due to the vast quantity of fires. So bright it was that we could see St. Elmo quite clearly. The gunners were able to train their pieces upon the advancing Turks, who were picked out in the light of fires. End quote. It was an impressive force. On the 3rd of June, a battalion of Janissaries captured one of the batteries that was facing the hill outside Fort St. Elmo, and thus they gained control of the moats and the trenches that led up to the walls. This was quite a victory. The commander of Fort St. Elmo managed to smuggle a letter over to Vallette. He begged leave to either surrender or abandon the fort, but Vallette was not willing to give up such an important piece of territory. He refused. Dragut ordered the bombardment increased. He wanted Fort St. Elmo abandoned or reduced to rubble. This went on for two weeks when, on the 17th of June, Dragut was standing on the hill, overseeing this cannonade against Elmo when something happened. The Maltese recorders will tell you that one of their gunners made a miracle of a shot. The Ottomans will tell you that one of their cannons backfired and exploded in shrapnel and gunpowder. Whatever the case, though, Dragut was struck with heavy shrapnel. He was taken away, and five days later, he succumbed to his wounds and died. Later that same day, the Ottoman cannons finally broke through the walls of Fort St. Elmo. They were able to enter the fortress and killed every man that was defending her. There were nine knights who were not killed, they were captured, and a few soldiers jumped into the harbor and swam to safety, but they killed hundreds, maybe thousands of soldiers. The general of the Ottoman forces there took command of the army overall, and he had crosses built from the rubble of the fort. Some of them would have been from recognizable places. Then he had the heads of those nine knights removed. He affixed them to the crosses, and floated them across the harbor as a message to the other knights of Malta. All of a sudden, back in Europe, everyone began to pay attention. Philip II, the Emperor Ferdinand, Henry of France, and even Queen Elizabeth made mention of how dangerous it would be if these Ottoman Turks managed to take Malta from the knights. 
everybody began to raise forces for relief missions. But nobody raised anything terribly substantial, and nobody went in haste. They had decisions to make. Was this a war? Who was fighting? Was the Ottoman Empire involved, or was it just pirates? Would France fight the defenders here, or would she stay out, or would she join our side? Nobody knew the answers to these questions, so the crowned heads of Europe moved slowly. It took six months for anyone to arrive, and then that was only an expeditionary force of 600 Spanish volunteers. They weren't there to defeat the Ottoman forces, they were merely there to relieve some of the Maltese forces defending against them. And in that entire time, the Barbary Corsairs were allowed to ravage the inland parts of Malta. With the general in command, they took the capital, they took the villages, and they took slaves. Once they were done with that, they focused their attentions on Fort St. Michael. Now this was a long and inconclusive siege. Days turned into weeks, weeks turned into months, and virtually nothing changed. Every day the Knights of Malta lost forces. Every day the Ottoman forces lost many times that number attempting to take Fort St. Michael, but despite that they still had the numerical advantage. However, that rivalry between the general and the admiral who had led this force before Dragut showed up, well, that reared its head again. The army and the navy were at loggerheads about how to proceed, and the corsairs, well, they followed Dragut. Most of them didn't have any love or any loyalty toward the Ottoman Empire, and Dragut was dead. Most of the corsairs, 12,000 or so soldiers, were ready to go home. And then that Spanish volunteer force arrived, 600 soldiers strong. Now that wasn't a large force, but that set off a panic among the Ottoman forces, who were essentially leaderless. The corsairs didn't have one overall leader. They had fallen into separate ship commands. The general and the admiral couldn't get their act together, and things turned into tumult. Rumors began to spread among all of the Ottomans that a force of thousands and thousands was on its way. The whole of Spain was about to fall on them. The Holy Roman Empire, France, and England, and the Netherlands, everybody was on their way to destroy these corsairs. Now, none of that was actually coming. The only force that had any chance of making it to Malta was an Italian force that had maybe a thousand soldiers. But this panic worked its way through the ranks and destroyed all of their morale. All of the will that these soldiers had to defeat the Maltese knights faded away. The Corsairs, without Dragut in charge, began to slip away. Then the Admiral, who wanted to take a different route than the General, threatened to take his entire fleet, all of the ships, back to Turkey, without the army. He was just going to leave all of the Ottoman forces on land. And the general, well, he capitulated. He agreed that they should return back to Turkey and report what had happened to the sultan. Soon enough, somewhere in the neighborhood of 20-25,000 Ottoman soldiers were returning home. They call this the Great Siege of Malta. And perhaps I didn't do it justice. It was six months of near-constant warfare on the island. But it's been imbued with this huge amount of importance to almost a mythological level. 
It was seen as a victory for Catholic Europe. It was painted as the new Battle of Tours when the advance of the Muslim horde was stopped. And it sort of was, but without Dragut to lead them and without his corsairs working for the empire, the navy and the army of the Ottoman Empire this far away from Turkey just didn't have the same spirit. And the navy, without Dragut there to lead them, began to decline. He was the overall commander, the commander-in-chief of their entire Mediterranean force, and nobody stood up to replace him. There were sea commanders who could have replaced him, talented commanders. Murat Rais was, well, he had the love of the corsairs, which seemed to be necessary to control the western Mediterranean, but he was more interested in piracy than commanding imperial forces. And perhaps that had more than a little to do with the fact that Suleiman the Magnificent, the lawgiver, the greatest sultan in Ottoman history, arguably, died the next year. Ottoman sea power began to decline further. Venice would declare war on the Ottoman Empire in the Mediterranean, and four years later there would be another climactic battle, the Battle of Lepanto. It was the largest battle since the days of the Roman Empire, fought at sea with rowing vessels. Lepanto is a battle that's often used to mark the end of Ottoman domination in the Mediterranean, and by some it's used to define the beginning of the Age of Sail. And perhaps that's a good point of distinction, but I choose instead to look at the Great Siege of Malta, when the will of the Ottoman Empire fell. The commander of the Knights of Malta, Jean de Vallette, was lionized all across Europe. He was painted at one point leading the charge with sword in hand at the last stand of the Knights of Malta. This was a last stand, though, that never took place. There were several desperate defenses to ward off attacks from the Ottomans, but the entire force never rallied to defeat the Corsairs in glorious battle. And Jean de Vallette probably never held a sword in real battle. By this point, he was an old man. And along with Jean de Vallette, Dragut's myth grew too. Ghost tells us that Dragut stood firm until the very end. Even after the cowardly Ottomans fled, Dragut and his pirates stayed resolute to finish the fight and die against the swords of the knights. And of course, that never happened. Dragut was killed early on in the siege, but it was told that way back in Algiers and Tunis and Tripoli. Dragut was buried in Tripoli in what was a glorious tomb. And with that, we're going to leave this first era of Barbary piracy, of Barbary corsairs. The distinction between pirate and corsair is today one of semantics, one which we're going to discuss on this show, but it proved very real for a number of European diplomats. There was one Englishman who found himself very nearly beheaded for calling a legitimate privateer, in the eyes of the sultan, a pirate. However, these seafarers, Oruj, Hazir, Dragut, all of these first wave of Barbary corsairs were true privateers working in the interests of the empire. In the book Pirates of Barbary, historian Adrian Tenniswood sums up this entire early age of Barbary corsairs. He 
ties this age not only to the Barbary pirates, the real pirates that are to come, but to the pirates that would come later, the pirates of Nassau and Port Royal and Madagascar. Tinnis Wood writes, quote, Their legacy in the Mediterranean was threefold. They confirmed the strategic importance of North Africa and of Algiers in particular. They showed the economic benefits which could accrue to a relatively poor state like Algiers from well-organized privateering. And they left behind them a group of effective and battle-hardened Corsair captains. The Barbary Coast offered the brave, the unscrupulous, the thing they wanted most of all, prosperity at sea. End quote. Next time we're going to move on. We're going to introduce the man that connected Morocco, Amsterdam, and the Barbary states of Algiers, Tunis, and Tripoli. And we're going to explore how those earliest adventurers from Amsterdam and Morocco and England to the Barbary states, how they learned for themselves and then showed the world exactly what someone who was brave and unscrupulous enough could do. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show as well. Everybody who has become a patron on Patreon. Everybody who has left us a review wherever it is you listen to the show. Everybody who has given us a donation through the website. Without all of you, I couldn't do this, so thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, I certainly suggest you do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight